Lord, we come before you this morning in need. We need you to speak to us through your word. And what we need, you supply. We trust that your spirit will help us in this. We are thirsty for truth. We are spiritually hungry for you. Would you make us more sensitive to your presence? Would you make us a people who gladly submit to your word so that we would love you more faithfully, that we would grieve and hate our sin more fully, that we would delight in your bride, that we would bear fruit and walk in spirit-led love and concern toward others. As many of us eagerly anticipate uh, what the rest of today will bring, we ask that you would give growth to our yearning for heaven, where we will see you face to face. Amen. All right, well, well, what better way to begin Christmas morning than with a brief history lesson? Okay. Uh, Dr. Stephen Tompkins writes this. He says, he says this, A little less than 2,000 years ago, a man appeared in the Roman province of Judea, claiming to be a teacher from God. Many Jews left their homes and jobs and followed him, believing he was the Messiah, their long-awaited miracle-working leader. But he was executed by the Roman occupation. His followers dispersed. The name of this failed prophet was Thetis. He was not the only alleged Messiah in the period. You will, of course, be aware of another. And in fact, there were quite a few. They all caused a local stir and almost all met grisly ends. Jesus of Nazareth was by no means the most famous at the time. These other alleged messiahs, Thetis and the rest, claimed to be the messiah. But only Jesus of Nazareth was virgin born. Only Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead. And this morning we will see that the gospel of Matthew narrows our focus on one miraculous event, the virgin birth, and one unlikely man, Joseph, the husband of Mary. Look and open to Matthew chapter 1, verses 18. Matthew 1, verses 18. You know, in the Gospels, we find several fascinating observations about who Joseph was. Joseph is Jesus' adoptive dad. At first, we have no record, not just here in Matthew, but just in the whole Bible, we have no record of, of uh, Joseph saying anything whatsoever at all. We only see his actions. Second, the gospel writers seem to go out of their way, they go out of their way to not call Joseph the father of Jesus. In our passage here in verse 18, Mary is called Jesus' mother, but no mention of Joseph being the father. Elsewhere in the gospel records, uh, Mary refers to Joseph as Jesus' father once. So they write down what Mary said. Uh, in the gospel accounts of Luke and John, the townspeople ask, when Jesus starts performing miracles, they say, is this not Joseph, the carpenter's son? It seems the closest we get to a gospel writer actually saying Joseph was Jesus' father is in Luke. He, one time he references Jesus' parents, who was barely there, and then the closest we get is when Luke says this. He says, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, in parentheses, of Joseph, the son of Heli. It, as was supposed. That, that is the closest that we get 
to Joseph being the father of Jesus. You'd think he would get a little bit more credit. Uh, It's fascinating. He's not the central character here. He's not the central character in Matthew's gospel uh, whatsoever at all. He's hardly a main character in this passage, even though he appears all over this passage. So just who was Joseph? Look in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And look in verse 24. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. So just, just who was this, this Joseph character that doesn't say a thing? Doesn't say a thing. He was betrothed to Mary, verse 18 tells us. He was just, verse 19 says. It also says that he was unwilling to dishonor his betrothed. He, he was a man of consideration and contemplation. He resolved to make this decision. Verse 21 says he was a son of David. He was a son of David. And Joseph was obedient. He was obedient. He married Mary, and he called the child's name Jesus. Later in Matthew, we see that that Joseph is a carpenter. He's a carpenter, which in in that day and age, had a broader meaning. It could have also meant not not just woodworking, but also uh, stonemasonry, maybe even working with, with metals. Uh, he, he held an important but a very humble occupation. Now, it must, it must be noted here that between the Old and New Testament, there, there's a period of silence that we see. It's about 400 years. Okay? God had not spoken to the prophets for over 400 years. Matthew and Luke's Gospels show us the break in the silence, the announcement of births. John the Baptist Jesus, the virgin-born Messiah. We see Joseph here, an imperfect but faithful embodiment of the prophet Micah's words. Back in the Old Testament, Micah said this in Micah 6.8, He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Here we have Joseph, full, full of hope. In the face of 400 years of silence, lived by faith in God. He acted justly. He loved mercy. He walked humbly with his God. He was just. This word is not just tied to, well, he just did the right thing. It is, it is tied to, the original word here is closely tied to God's law, being in step with God's law. It was Joseph's standard. Apart from God's law, he did not know what to do He did not know the right thing to do. He used God's law to help him to be just. He was upright even when it was difficult. He was unwilling to dishonor others. He had every right legally to end the betrothal to Mary. What he was doing here was not wrong of him to do. And he could have done it in a very public way. In, In a betrothal, 
back then without getting too much into the weeds of it. Uh, it, It's very different than an engagement nowadays. A betrothal would have required more, more sincerity. Actually, to break the betrothal would have required a certificate of divorce, which is what uh, Joseph was seeking initially. And, and you say, well, wait a second. If Joseph was a godly man, then why didn't he believe his wife? <laughs> why didn't he believe Mary? Why was he considering divorce? Would you believe her? I don't think so. I asked my kid that this morning. She was like, yeah, I would have. And I was like, no, you wouldn't have. No, no, you wouldn't have. <laughs> Can you imagine this, right? Mary coming to Joseph. Joseph, I know you're not going to believe this, but I am pregnant and I am still a virgin. An angel appeared to me and told me all of this. You wouldn't buy that. Joseph did not. And in his heartache that his wife was pregnant with a child not his own, he could have made quite the scene. But he chose honor over dishonor toward the woman he loved and the God he obeyed. He resolved to divorce her quietly. Joseph was prayerfully contemplative. In in his agony of feeling betrayed, he did not rush into divorce. It seems likely that, that he took the time that Mary had gone to her cousin Elizabeth's house. She was there about three months, Luke's gospel tells us. And I just I can't imagine the agony that he went through over, over thinking through this decision. But he made a hard but final resolve to what? To end the betrothal. But then next, next we see part of who Joseph is. He's a son of David. The angel says this. We see that Joseph was a son of David. The angel appears, and everything Joseph had just resolved to do was thrown out the window, was it not? It instantly changed. And and of all the ways this angel could have addressed him, not Joseph the carpenter, Joseph of Nazareth, Joseph the Israelite, but Joseph the son of David. It's like the angel is saying, greetings to one who is rightful heir to the king's throne. The angel is saying, "I I know you're not just a lowly carpenter. I know who you are. I know where you come from. Finally, we see an obedient Joseph. What does Joseph do? He hears the word of God and he submits to it without hesitation. Without hesitation. He takes Mary as his wife and he calls the virgin-born child Jesus. He he feared God. He was a son of the king indeed. And decades later, decades later, the apostle Paul would write this. He would write this. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So so when we think of a summary of Joseph's brief witness to us here, it provides godly mentorship to us in two ways, in two ways. First, the first mentorship moment. God is willing for his people to go through impossible, lose-lose situations for his glory, and they are good. Think about the Old Testament Joseph, imprisoned for years and years and years, falsely accused. Think about Job. He was a blameless man. What did his friends do? They just, they blamed all of his suffering on on him. Joseph in today's passage was also in a lose-lose situation. Was he not? He did not ask to be placed in this. Think think about what he chose when he chose to obey God. 
Joseph chose to take the blame. By taking pregnant Mary as his wife, he covered her. His actions spoke clearly to all their family, friends, and neighbors. I, Joseph, committed adultery. Because you really think anybody's going to believe the real story? There's no way. It It took a supernatural being to convince Joseph of what was really going on. You could just imagine the the town swirling with gossip. Joseph, I I thought better of you. How could you? Joseph, such a hypocrite. I thought you were a just man. Now I see you're you're just like a man. Christian, don't don't let this instruction pass you by. God God is willing to put your feet to the fire because God values your obedience above your reputation. He values your obedience above your reputation. Faith family, church, in your moment of crisis, be willing to bring dishonor on your own name for God's sake. And do not fear. Joseph, he was told by the angel to not fear in taking Mary for his wife. So Joseph took the initial heat for what would quickly become slander. We see this in other gospel accounts. In John's gospel, uh, it's very clear. Jesus is accused of being born of sexual immorality. Saints and slander, are they're they're just like two peas in a pod. So, So let's get ahead, let's get ahead of that slander by trusting that God will one day be glorified in it. And one day you will be vindicated from it when the time comes. The second mentorship moment. Living as an heir to the kingdom means living full of humility and hope. Men of God, do you humbly entrust your work to the Lord? In your labors, when you lay bricks and build, when you march and lead, when you read and type, when you husband and parent, do you do it with rock-solid hope that you are a co-heir with Christ in his kingdom. In him, your heritage is a kingly one. So, so then live, live kingly of heart. How do you do this? Walk humbly, full of hope in God's sovereign work in your past, your present, and your future. Joseph, though kingly of heritage and heart, he never had a royal life, did he? He lived humble and hopeful. And, and consider, though, he was given a great gift, one beyond any that any earthly ruler could lay claim to. What was that gift? He was given the gift of taking part in parenting the king of kings. Women of God, have you, have you ever felt left in the shadows, left, left like a, a, a brief backdrop like Joseph? Do you look to your great hope who will never leave you? Do you daily share company and conversation with the king of kings in his word? And, and if, you are, if you are in Christ, do whatever it is God has given you to do, however seemingly small or humble it is. Do it with the heart of a co-heir who seeks God's kingdom and glory. You know, Joseph was a man of integrity. He certainly was. Yet, yet he still fell short of God's standard. His life serves merely to point to the central character of Matthew's gospel, 
the virgin-born son who will save his people from their sins. There's, there's no greater hope than this. Look in verse 20. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, he's quoting the prophet Isaiah, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So, so Matthew, he's quoting here from the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament to supplement what, what he's already begun. We, we saw this last week with the genealogy. The Messiah should meet at least, well, last week we saw four criteria, and this week we see another, at least five criteria. First of all, born of a woman. Genesis 3 is very clear of this. Born of a woman, meaning the Messiah won't be a, a spirit. The Messiah won't be an angel. The Messiah will be human. Genesis 22, from the seed of Abraham. Genesis 49, from the tribe of Judah. 2 Samuel 7, from the line of David. The true Messiah of Israel and indeed the world will meet these criteria and, and the Messiah will fulfill what the scriptures have foretold about him, like this passage in Isaiah does. Now, if, if you are here and you don't believe in Jesus, then then I, I want you to believe in him. But what I'm about to say is going to make that more difficult. So, so bear, bear with me. The virgin birth is true. It really happened. God the Father, in his infinite wisdom, chose for God the Son to be born of a woman by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is called the incarnation. The word became flesh. Jesus who existed long before the creation of this world, took on human form fully. He is fully God. He is fully man. Very God and very man. These things are hard for us to understand. Nevertheless, the virgin birth is true. Even, even as it makes defending the faith a harder task. Okay? For example... Scholars note how there was no known Jewish expectation that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. It, it just wasn't in the picture. Jewish tradition saw this passage that Matthew cites from Isaiah, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, as fulfilled in that day and age. Now, Matthew wants to convince his readers about how Jesus is truly God's Messiah. But, but it's clear it's clear that Matthew valued this above all. He valued the truth of the eyewitness testimony over and above any attempt to persuade readers of the truth. Which is why one scholar noted here that, that there's no need to believe Matthew wrote this for any reason except, except that he believed that that's just what happened. The virgin birth is true, and it, and it does make defending the faith a more difficult task. But, but the proclamation of the truth of God's Messiah, who is the truth, it is far more valuable than us just trying to get people in the doors. Do you see this? And if you're here and you don't believe it, then, then let me tell you why. Here's why you don't believe the virgin birth happened. Okay? It, it has nothing to do with the how of it. 
It's the, it's the who. It's not, nothing to do with the how of it. We have things like in vitro fertilization. We have things like artificial insemination. We have basic logic that as one, one Scottish professor noted, he said this, the first man to come into existence could not have come into existence through an act of sexual intercourse between two human beings. That's just basic logic, right? So why on earth would God, infinite in power, be stuck, have to be stuck relying on procreation for there to be incarnation? You know, several long-gone liberal theologians, they used to discredit the virgin birth because things like in vitro fertilization weren't around back then, okay? So they said pregnancy was impossible without intercourse. They, they didn't have a category for things like in vitro fertilization. So, so the bad assumption they had was since that, well, it's impossible for man, so I, it, it must be impossible for a deity with, with unlimited power, okay? But, but the truth is that these theologians theologians, right? They hid from themselves this truth. It, nothing to do with the virgin birth. They just didn't believe in God. That is what it comes down to. That is the heart of the issue, isn't it? Perhaps some of you here are visiting. You don't believe in the virgin birth, but it's because you don't believe in God. It's an authority issue. You, you think that, that if there does happen to be a God, then, then you would do a better job. Maybe you don't like the way he runs this world. Maybe you don't like the life he's given to you or to others. You oppose his way of doing things. Deniers of the virgin birth, they all, they all share a common problem. They, they lack a category for a truly all-good, all-powerful God. They lack the sight to see the glory of the gospel. They, they lack what we all so desperately need the ears of faith to hear and receive the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, his life, death, and resurrection to deliver us from sin and death and hell. He does this through his atoning work on the cross. And this, this is exactly why Jesus came into this world. There's a wonderful book called The Person of Christ by uh, Dr. Donald McLeod. It's called The Person of Christ. And in it, he highlights several points of significance for the virgin birth. One of those points is that the virgin birth is a sign of God's judgment on human nature. Why? Why is that? It's a sign of God's judgment on human nature. Well, it's, human nature is incapable of saving itself. God has decreed they can't do it. Humanity cannot save itself. Because humans don't even know who humans are. Many of us were educated in this way, right? Humans are nothing more than, than slightly evolved brute beasts. We, we don't know who we are. We say we want rescue from pain and death and suffering, but, it, but if we're merely highly developed animals, then we, what we mean is we want to evolve beyond something that we never evolved from to begin with. The only conclusion Humankind is lost. Human nature is lost. It prefers the company of its own authority rather than the company of God and his sovereign rule. Human nature is lost. It, it would rather convenience itself to death before being inconvenienced into something like repentance and faith. The, the judgment was rendered in the virgin birth. 
Humanity cannot save itself. Salvation must come from outside. And thank God it did. For this reason, Jesus entered the world as both God and man in order to seek and to save the lost. Matthew 121, the angel said to Joseph, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will, he will save his people from their sins. The first advent of Christ was ushering in something entirely new for the people of God. Emmanuel, God with us as one of us. It's entirely new. It's a non-Christian. True hope is the person of Jesus. We want you to know this. He's fully God and fully man. And we, we do. We joyfully welcome you to turn from your sin and trust in him. Over 100 years ago, there was a preacher named uh, Daniel Stearns in Philadelphia. Uh, after a sermon, a, a man came up to Pastor Stearns and he, and he said this. He said, I don't like your preaching. I do not care for the cross. I think that instead of preaching the death of Christ on the cross, it would be far better to preach Jesus, the teacher and example. Dr. Stearns replied, would you be willing to follow him if I preach Christ as example? The man answered, I would. I would follow him. Then, said Dr. Stearns, let us take the first step. He did no sin. Can you take this step? The man looked confused. He replied, no, I do sin, and I acknowledge it. Well then, said Dr. Stearns, your first need of Christ is not as an example, but as Savior. If you are, if you are not in Christ, then you must be warned of your true condition. We were all born into sin, which means that your love for yourself, it is almost immeasurable. <laughs> and your hatred for God is almost perfect. Your physical death is just one consequence. But, but there is a fate worse than death. God's just wrath on your injustice. His righteous wrath against your disobedience. You know, we, we don't believe in a message here that saves people who are trying to earn points with God or just make sure they, they do more good than bad. We, we believe in the gospel that trades our filthy rags of sin with the perfect work of Jesus. It is only through the atoning work of Christ on the cross that you can be saved. As one, as one theologian has said of the incarnate Son of God, he said this, as God... Jesus laid down an infinite life that was more than sufficient to redeem any number of finite lives. It's fascinating, right? We see so many, so many examples, so many precursors, so many uh, prefigurations of who Jesus, or who the Messiah would be. We even have this one last final one with Joseph. Joseph took the blame in a finite situation a situation that he and Mary were both blameless in. His actions not, not only merely point us to the one who took all the blame, but Joseph, we see, took the fall for the betrothed, the one. Jesus takes the fall for his bride, the many. So non-Christian, my prayer for you this morning is that you would hate your sin for the first time, that you'd find forgiveness at the cross. Faith family, and fellow Christians, does the hope of the gospel move you to action? 
we will close our time on this. You know, sometimes as Christians, we wonder, you know, I, I love the Lord, but, but am I actively, eagerly hoping in him? And what, what, is that, what does that look like? How do I know if I'm growing in my walk with God? Uh, I found a very helpful quote from R.C. Sproul who once said this. He said, there are no quick and easy paths to spiritual maturity. The soul that seeks a deeper level of maturity must be prepared for a long, arduous task. If we were to seek the kingdom of God, we must abandon any formula that promises instant spiritual gratification. So to, to move us to maturity, I, I want to share a list of questions from you. It's from Dr. Donald Whitney. I, I believe these will benefit your walk with Christ. There are 10 questions to diagnose your spiritual health, okay? First question, do I thirst for God? Do I still grieve over sin? Am I a quicker forgiver? Am I more loving? Am I sensitive to God's presence? Am I concerned for others? Am I governed by God's word? Do I delight in the church? Are the spiritual disciplines important to me? Do I yearn for heaven and to be with Jesus? So faith family, here's what I want you to do in, in the new year. Once a month, I want you to pull this out. So 12 times total, okay, 12 times total. I want you to pull out this list of questions and ask yourself these things. And if you struggle to live by faith in the hope of the gospel in, in any of these matters, please speak to one of the pastors. This is what we are here for. We would love to shepherd you through these things. Let us pray. Father, in your sovereign plan, at the perfect time, you sent your son to be born of a virgin to remove sin curse. He was born fully man and was still fully God. You sent him to be just like us, to identify with us. In Adam, who first represented us, we all died. Adam, who was born without sin, chose sin over you. Jesus, who was born without sin, chose you over sin. In Christ, the second Adam, we live. We praise you for sending him to save us from our sins. We look in hope toward his second advent when he comes again for those who eagerly await his return. Amen.